Good morning, everybody. Are we excited to be here today? Yes. I am too. I love the Bible. It is one of those things that you can be having a day that is going up here, it's down here, it's over here, it's going all over the place, and the scripture is there. You know, it's just one of those constants in our lives that is just such a help. So if you've got your Bible, I hope you do, turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. While you're turning there, there's a sheet of paper on your, on your uh, table. It says the Sunday School Weekly Update. It's got a spot for your prayer requests. So we're going to write those down toward the end of class. It's got a spot for all the attendants. So everybody at every table, make sure your name is on that attendance section. And it's got a couple of announcements that pertain to our class. So, Genesis chapter 37. Now, this is our fifth series in our Essential 100 schedule. So, we're looking at 100 passages all throughout the Bible. And we're spending five weeks in the Old Testament, and then five weeks in the New Testament, and five weeks in the Old Testament, and five weeks in the New Testament. And now we're on that third five weeks in the Old Testament. And this five weeks, we are finally going to finish Genesis. Right? 15 weeks of the 50 weeks, get my math right here. Mathematicians shouldn't make math errors in public, but we do sometimes. 15 of the 50 weeks of the Old Testament are in Genesis. And if you're wondering, that seems like a lot. Yes, it is, because that's how much is going on in Genesis. What God is doing, God is setting the stage for all the other things that are going to happen throughout the rest of the Bible. Um, And we'll see even today, in today's text, that God has already looked at some things and set some things up and kind of teed them up so that when they happen in Genesis 37, we're already familiar with that concept. Um, so, we'll be looking at five weeks on the story of Joseph. Now, we've got a little timeline there, and this is making one critical assumption, your timeline at the bottom of your page. The literal assumption is that the Bible is true and the numbers are accurate. And if the Bible is true and the numbers are accurate, this is pretty close. I would say within 20 to 50 years of any of these dates. So it kind of gives us an idea. So you've got creation at around 4,000 B.C. Abraham shows up around 2,000 B.C. Moses is about 1,500 B.C. And Joseph happens somewhere in the middle there, somewhere around 1,700 B.C. So, quick summary of the story of Joseph. So this is the, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you what I told you, part of the lesson, right? So quick summary of the story of Joseph. Joseph is his daddy's favorite son. Now, instantly, you should already go, have you heard this story before, right? Because we've talked about this happened with several other families in the Old Testament already, is that we have this favoritism going on, right? So Joseph is his daddy's favorite son, and he's sold into slavery by his brothers. Now, just think about that for a second. I mean, Lynn, you've got a brother, right? Yeah, and he's a nice guy. I know him, right? Yeah, and you've thought about selling him into slavery a couple times. Yeah, okay. Well, you're the older brother too, right? Yeah, he, they did that, right? That was not cool. Yeah, not good at all. So his brothers sell him into slavery. So this is their mindset. And God works through a variety of these circumstances, and Joseph becomes the second in command of Egypt, like the country. I mean, huge, huge political and influential position this is. And then... God uses Joseph in this position to save not only Egypt, but Joseph's family. And the output of this story that we're going to be looking at over five weeks, the result is that the children of Israel spend hundreds of years in captivity in Egypt. And because you have Genesis 37 through 50, you have to have the book of Exodus. 
So Joseph and his scheming family get them in, right? And then God has to spend several hundred years getting them out. So this is all connected. Sometimes we read the Bible and we go, well, Genesis is a different book than Exodus, so it's not connected. Oh, no, 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 no. It's very, very connected. This is all interwoven, tightly connected. So one of the things that we see is that God is building Joseph's character as we go through. Now, we, you probably know, if I, if I ask the question, what does a perfect Christian look like? So I teed it up, somebody swing. Jesus, there you go, right? So then you go, well, that was great. So what does Jesus look like, though? And you go, uh, that's a little tougher one, right? He looks like God, yes, exactly. That's great. But so what is, you know, we can keep going with that, what does, right? So what did Jesus look like? Well, he was the perfect fulfillment of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, on and on and on, all those nine things. He is the perfect fulfillment of those nine things. And when we think about how does God build those things in our lives, he builds those things in our lives by giving us opportunities to display those things, right? Well, you guys are asleep this morning, so we're going to do jumping jacks or we're going to do something, or, right? He gives us opportunities to do the opposite. And when we don't do the opposite, we build that habit, that character, that fruit that demonstrates who we are. There's a table, I think it's on the back side. We're already done with the first side of the handout. Fastest ever going through one page of a handout, right there. You just saw it. Four and a half minutes, bud. That was amazing, wasn't it? There you go. So the following is based on The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. He's got a great section in his book on this. And God develops love by allowing unloving people to challenge us, tempting us to be unloving. How many of you experienced that this week? Somebody that just was just a shade unloving. And you had an opportunity. Julie's got both hands up. Um, and you had an opportunity to be unloving back, right? So God, he teased this up. What are you going to do? Are you going to swing at it? Are we going to experience love by not being unloving? And what we're doing here is we're building character. That was an amen right there. I'm taking it, okay? We're building character. So God develops joy by allowing sorrow, tempting us to despair and become bitter. So he's, he, he gets what he wants, the result of us looking like Jesus, by giving us opportunities to do the opposite. And we reinforce this behavior. And the Holy Spirit comes along and helps in this whole process, this fruit of the Spirit. So as we look at Joseph's life over the next five weeks, God works through the events of our lives for his good and for our good. Now, the story of Joseph cannot be told outside of the concept of family because it is all about family his story. So how many of you have a family where everything on the surface is perfect? There's no tension on the surface. Anybody have one of those families? Yes, Julie's got it. Yes, right? We have one. You have one? Yeah, because the, the goal is for everything to look good. And we've checked the southern hospitality box, right, because everything looks good. But underneath the surface, we have real problems. Some of you are looking at me like, I have no clue what you're talking about. We just had it out at home. <laughs> that, that happens too. We're going to get there. Now, so I've got a question for you. How many of you like to drink hot tea? Like put the tea bag in and I mean the whole, like, so, so you like to drink hot tea, right? What kind of hot tea do you like to drink? 
decaf in the evenings. Okay, any kind of flavoring or anything or no, just regular straight up. Anybody like any special kind of flavorings? What do you like? Pomegranate. I wouldn't even have a clue what that tasted like. That's pomegranate. What do you like, Trish? Lemongrass. That sounds like a Willy Wonka thing or something. I mean, it's like, pick some grass. It's tasty, you know? It's like, no. Um, so when you drink hot tea, you, you put the tea bag in the water, and you put the water in the microwave, and you nuke it, right? Is that the best way to do it? In the microwave? What's the best way to do it? In a, in a pot. Where does the pot go? On the stove. Now, how many of you ever watched a pot of water boil? Like, from the start to finish, watched it boil. It does something very interesting right before the water starts to boil. The pot will rattle just a little bit because something is about to happen. There's a change going on inside because of the pressure that is building up. And then all of a sudden, what happens? It bubbles and it... We can see it and we can hear it because something has fundamentally changed. And that's what happens in Genesis 37. You have all of this boiling, this low-level rumbling that's all in the background. It's in the genealogies, okay? Because when we get to Genesis 37, Jacob, who Genesis 37 also calls Israel, Jacob already has 12 sons and at least one daughter. And the, the strange thing about Jacob's family is that he's got 12 sons and one daughter by four different women. Now, if you want to build a harmonious and happy family under one roof, this is not the way to do it, right? Four women. So everybody knows the story of Jacob, right, and how he got his wives. So he, he goes and he, he falls in love with, if you don't know the answer, it's friend. He falls in love with Rachel. Yes, he falls in love with Rachel. And he goes and he, he makes a deal with Laban, yeah, her father, and he says, I want to marry her. And Laban says, cool, worked for seven years. He goes, man, that's a long time. Okay, I love her. I'm like madly in love with her, right? It's Ross and Rachel, the whole nine yards. So he works and works and works. Seven years, on the honeymoon night, wakes up the next morning, and lo and behold, it's Leah. So pop the balloon, right? So what does he do? He's one of the dumbest moves in Scripture. He hits the reset button. <laughs> Let's do it again, right? Sure, why not? Because working for seven years didn't work out last time, so let's go ahead and do it again. I will never understand this move. So, so he does it again, works for seven more years, and now he gets to marry Rachel. So now he's got a problem. Because sometimes more of a good... He, the Bible says, he who finds a wife findeth a good thing. And sometimes more of a good thing is not a good thing. Okay, so two is not better than one in this scenario, right? That, that verse in Ecclesiastes says two is better than one. That's talking about the man and the woman. It's not talking about two women and a man. That is not better than one. That does not work that way. So, so now he's got two wives. So who does he love the most, though? Rachel. So we've got favoritism among his wives, nonetheless. So can you imagine living under one house or one tent, how this is working? Probably not well. So guess who has children with him first? Leah. Guess how many boys she has? She has four right off the bat. Bam, 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 bam. 
well, Rachel wants some children. So Rachel comes up with a great idea that her great mother-in-law had. And that was, here's my handmaiden. Go have children with her. So Jacob, seizing an opportunity, decides to have children with his second wife's handmaid and has two boys with him. Her. <laughs> you think it's complicated listening to it. It's really complicated telling it. So then, I'm, I'm, I'm almost got lost at this point. So then, Leah gives Jacob her handmaid because she saw that this apparently made Jacob happy. So Leah decides, oh, I'll follow suit. I'll give you my handmaid, Zilpah, which is an awesome name. Just, Zilpah is a great one. And then Jacob has two more boys with Leah's handmaid. You see how this is just getting, I mean, it's like Alabama family tree. It's just <laughs> ugly, ugly stuff. So then Leah has two more boys with Jacob and a girl, Dinah, who shows up later on in a chapter that we are not, praise the Lord, going to cover in this class. Uh, and then finally at the end, Rachel has who? Joseph and Benjamin. Very good. You've read this before. That's awesome. Yeah. So she has Joseph and Benjamin. And guess who Jacob's two favorite sons are? Joseph and Benjamin. Yeah. Now, how do you think that made the first ten sons feel? Not so hot. So that's the backstory as we walk into Genesis 37. This is all the junk that's in their family history. Okay? So we get to Genesis 37. It says, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. So that was what I just told you. Joseph, which means Jehovah has added, Jehovah has added, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Did it say he was with the sons of Leah? There is a reason. They did not get along. <laughs> okay, they did not get along. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. How many of you have a child that is a tattletale? Can you think of a better word to describe than this? He's 17 years old and he's still tattletaling. Is that a verb, tattletaling? I don't know. We can just coin it today if it's not. He's still doing it. He's 17 years old. I mean, good grief, right? So do you think this fosters good relations with he and his father's handmaid slash wives' children? No, this is not helping. He's digging the trench deeper here. Verse 3, now Israel, this is God's name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him, and what does your Bible say? A tunic or a what? Coat of what? And we all know this story, right? Yeah, and I'm just going to burst your bubble today. I am so sorry to have to do this. Coat is like the worst possible translation of this word. It's a tunic. It's an undergarment. Sorry. hate it for you. Like, so all those Bible, those children's Bibles, it gets worse. The, word, the Hebrew word for colors does not mean colors. There was a really bad translation in an incredibly early English version of the Bible that just got propagated. The word actually means flat palm and or sole, like of your feet. V 
The idea is that it is an undergarment that went to the flat parts of his body. It went to his hands and to his feet. It was a full-length undergarment. Now, this was considered lavish luxury because tunics did not go that far. They, they were cut off very high at the shoulder, and they were cut off at the thigh. That was considered normal. That was enough to cover up what you needed to cover up so you could put your coat on outside and move around. This was a lavish undergarment. Doesn't that just stink? You're like, seriously? Dude, it's amazing what we find out when we actually just you know, read the text. Uh, there's a whole lot of theology out there that's wrong on this. Yeah. So there's really just no theological justification for calling this a coat of many colors. But if your kids are like dead set on drawing Joseph with the colors, it might have been colorful, I don't know. But there was something on top of it because he certainly would not have walked around with just this showing. That would have been weird. Okay? Verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him, and, and you can see love, right? I mean, you can see love sometimes because love is a verb. It's not a noun. More than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, Terry, I'm going to need your help real quick. When you meet somebody in an Eastern culture and you walk up to them, what do they say? What's the normal greeting? Yes, which means peace. So when Joseph's brothers walked up to him, they did not say, they did not say shalom. It was a big insult. They could not speak peace to him. So how many of you have ever been snubbed by somebody that shouldn't have snubbed you? Right? You walk up to him, hey, Stuart, how you doing? And it's... Right? In our culture, it just, you just kind of get upset. In this culture, this is a major insult to you. Major insult. So they would not speak peaceably to him. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. Now, we have looked at dreams so far in the Old Testament. And what has God done with the concept of dreams... Up to this point, when we hear about a dream in Genesis, who is communicating? God is communicating, right? So we have this idea that the, the natural assumption on the part of the reader of Genesis is that this is a message from God. This is a message from God. So Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So, after the hate, okay, most people think that they hated him because he told them the dream. He, he, he told them about the dream, and then he goes into details, and then they hate him some more. Verse 6, so he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. So he, apparently he's trying to make peace with them at this point, I hope. Otherwise he's just dumber than a bag of hammers. Um, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves. Now sheaves is not a word that probably comes up in your everyday conversation, unless you happen to be watching an episode of Little House on the Prairie, where they're in the church and they're, they're singing a hymn because that was the only hymn they ever sung in the entire 47 years of that, of that uh, TV show. Right? It's bringing in the sheaves. And everybody's going, well, what is a sheave? Right? Well, when you harvest wheat, you don't just leave it all lying on the ground. You bind it up. The closest approximation would be a square bale of hay or a round bale of hay. You've just bound it up for easy transport later on. So he said... There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. I mean, seriously, dude. Either he's like a little off in the head, or 
he's just trying to aggravate them. I, I don't know which, the Bible really doesn't say which one. Now, here's my question. Did Joseph sin by telling his brothers this dream? Did he sin by telling them this dream? No, he didn't sin by doing it. Did he do himself any favors, though? No, not at all. Not at all. So he's, he, he's just propagating this, I'm my daddy's favorite. Verse 8, And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign? Literally, the word is to be a king, which is cool foreshadowing later on, over us. Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams, plural, they were already plural at this point, and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers. <laughs> He's like, I mean, just come on, man. Just do yourself a favor here at some point. And we all know these people that just keep continually digging a hole and digging it deeper and aggressively go after just making themselves look really bad, and that's what he's doing. He told it to his brothers, and he said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven... How many brothers did he have? Eleven. How many... And the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father. And his brothers, and his father rebuked him, which is a big deal for your favorites, right? And said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Verse 12, then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. This is a couple days journey away. And Israel, this is Jacob, said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So Joseph said to him, here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. So this is a couple days away. Verse 15, Now when a certain man found him, there Joseph was, wandering in the field. So just a pop quiz. Are we impressed with anything that Joseph has done at this point? With his interpersonal skills, with his logic or with his navigational skills. I, he hasn't done anything yet. And this is the beautiful story of the Bible, is that God picks people who can't get it right and uses them. That's me. I can't get it right. I cannot. And he picks us. Beautiful, beautiful story in the Bible. So there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? Now, if you read any Jewish commentaries, because I know this is what you guys do in your spare time, you will find that most Jewish commentaries think that this is an angel. Because right? they try to spiritualize every aspect of anything that's going on. So they think this is an angel. And it could have been an angel. Some Christian commentaries think it was the man, with a capital M. They think it was Jesus himself. The only problem with any of that is that the Bible doesn't say. Right, so don't guess where it doesn't say. So he said to him, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. Dothan is about another day away from Shechem. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So finally, he does something right. right? He, gets, he catches up with his brothers. Verse 18, Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near to them, they conspired this is an awesome word. If you look this word up in a dictionary, it means to deal with knavishly. Think Jack Sparrow. 
okay? Knavishly, and this is like pirate word here, okay? They deal with him knavishly against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Now, how many of you had animals as a child? Anybody have a dog? Anybody ever ride their dog when they were a little kid? You rode your dog? Yeah. Did, did the dog appreciate being ridden? Sometimes the dog's okay with it, right? But it depends on how big you are. If you want to ride the dog when you're 30 years old, the dog is going to have a problem with that. And you can poke that dog, even if that dog is your friend, you can poke that dog and poke that dog and poke that dog until that dog will turn on you. There is a point at which people have had enough, and they had had enough, and they have decided to kill him. Now, this is their brother. So they have to be smart about this, because remember to the, the last stories that we talked about, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what did Jacob's name mean? Deceiver. So they've got to deceive a man whose name is Deceiver. <laughs> they've got to be smart about this. So, verse 21, but Reuben, Reuben has one of the most hilarious names in all of Scripture, I think. His name means, behold, a son. <laughs> so she has the baby, and the name is, behold, a son. <laughs> you don't think that's not? I thought that was hilarious. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. No, he was the first. He was the first. Yeah, it's like, what in the world, you know? <laughs> it, it makes me wonder what the second, I should have looked up what the, it makes me wonder what the second one is. Behold another son. I don't know. Maybe. So, but Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. So somebody, finally, we've got reason prevailing here. Verse 22, And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast it into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to their, his father. Verse 23, So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped him of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him and they took him and cast him into a pit and the pit was empty and there was no water in it because if you get cast in a pit in this period the assumption is there's water in the pit because this is a well and you drown so they had to clarify here that he did not drown verse 25 and they sat down to eat a meal <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right because they just treated somebody inappropriately, and now we're going to just hang out about it, you know. Um, I ran a yard mowing business when I was in high school. I know this is hard for some of you to believe, because this is just totally the, anti the opposite of anything that I do now, but uh, when I was in high school, my hands were what? Calloused. I mean calluses on calluses. It was unbelievable how callous they were. And this, to me, is the ultimate in callous behavior. It is just, we have decided to kill you, we threw you in a pit, and now we're just going to have some food. Now, later on in Genesis, at the end of this story, there's an interesting little verse in Genesis 47 that's, that very seriously implies that the brothers heard him crying out for his life in the pit. Now, the interesting thing is that they talk about this 22 years later. Twenty-two years of hanging on to that. That's a long time. That's a long time. 
Then they lifted their eyes and they looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites. This is their great uncle's descendants, coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah, this is the fourth brother, said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? So now we're looking for the financial angle? This is, don't gripe about your family too quickly, okay? There are people with much worse families. Verse 27, Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh. Well, that sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Yeah. And his brothers listened. Verse 28, Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit. So apparently Reuben's been doing something else during this period of time. He's not privy to the fact that we just sold Joseph. And indeed, Joseph was not in the pit. I love these little phrases in the Bible. where They've already stated something to be true, and they go, and indeed, he was not in the pit. If I was one of those narrators of the Bible, I would read it just that way. And he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, there is no, the lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? Because Reuben felt like he had some responsibility here to make sure that his brothers were protected because Jacob was going to hold Reuben accountable because that's who was accountable for the health and the safety of the other brothers. So Reuben's going, I have a, pro- I have a personal problem at this point. Verse 31, so they took Joseph's tunic killed the kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in blood. And please understand that when we sin, something has to bleed. You have heard me say this dozens of times. When we sin, something has to bleed. Verse 32, Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father, and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn into pieces. And what is Jacob's name? Deceiver. And the deceiver has been deceived. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Verse 35, And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning, thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. So here we have, at the end of this chapter, Reuben is in mourning. Jacob is in mourning. All the sons and the daughters are trying to console their father. Joseph has been sold into slavery and is now in Egypt. Is this an uplifting story or what? I mean, this, it doesn't get much happier than this in all of Scripture. Well, we'll find out what happens to him in the next few weeks. It does turn around quite a bit. But So what's the point of this story? Well, number one, over-communicating good things can sometimes be a bad thing. Right? You, you can tell a story so much that people get angry at you about the positive that you're talking about. Number two, a house divided, itself, divided against itself cannot stand. I think Jesus may have mentioned this a time or two. And then number three, God is working even when we cannot see him working or know what he is working on. He is working. He is working through every single bit of this. So what do we do with that? Well, number one, show tact when sharing truth, right? We don't have to use bullhorns or baseball bats. We can just show a little tact when we're sharing truth. Number two, ensure there is no favoritism in my family. 
because the majority of this story is a result of this favoritism that is shown, and it is not a good thing. And then number three, grow from the challenges in my life, because God is giving Joseph opportunities to develop habits and character now that he is badly going to need 20 years from now. Badly, badly, badly going to need. So, that's the first week. I promise you this is the, the low point in the story. This is the, the low. We begin to climb up out of this mess over the next four weeks. It, gets, it has some uglier spots as we go through, but we begin to climb up out of this in the next four weeks. And here's the cool thing. God can fix even this. Right? He can fix even this. This is not too hard for him to fix. Thanks for coming today.